0: Malevolent, whispering static, forever eroding the sanity of the Underhive. We are the unrelenting, gibbering thing of Rebellion. 665.66UHMR, ChemRat Radio. Our misadventures tonight take us once again deep into the tangled rust sprawls of the sump in search of that lost archaeotech and archive caches. Armed, as always, with what some might say is an unhealthy amount of plasma weaponry and the willingness to slag first and ask questions never... I'm your host, Goblin King. My partner in crime is the infamous treasure hunter and rogue archaeosavant Savant, Shock, my guide to these twisting, frozen tunnels of lost history. Hey guys, I never have anything much to say. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to episode 92 of Under the Hive of Madness, the origins of Warhammer 40K, the Chaos Gods and Lovecraft. Since it's the season of Spooky and we are covering the Horus Heresy, it feels like this is a perfect time to talk about some of the good old cosmic horror. Shock, much like me, you have a very deep background in literature in general. And while we have very much waxed philosophically on the science fiction side up to this point, we haven't really talked a lot about the horror, the grim. No. Of the grim, wait a minute. <laughs> I just realized both grim and dark It's it are horror comments. <laughs> you want to do that we, one over again? No, no, it's fine. <laughs> We're running with it. We haven't <laughs> talked about the sci-fi. Or we, we've talked about the sci-fi. We haven't talked about the grim dark. So um, classic horror has
1: always been a favorite of mine. And I've been a big fan of um, Lovecraft and... The Lovecraftian mythos, um, yeah, which are not the same standard. thing, by the way, yep. by far, uh, for a long time since I was a teenager, it's when I started reading it. Um, and uh, sort of the also the horror fantasy stuff. Um, Lovecraft actually did not write much stuff. There are not very many yeah. things that he actually wrote. However, with people like August Derelith, and um, others, who's uh, there? There are a bunch of other writers. They've really yeah, the, the taken Cthulhu off. The Cthulhu
0: Mythos is very much expanded post yes. Lovecraft, and, and even Lovecraft borrowed and built on oh, a yes. couple of authors who came before him. So the, the big I,
1: ones are that came before him, of course, were um, now I don't have this here.
0: Robert W. Chambers, yes, is a big Chambers, one.
1: who wrote the the King in Yellow book. And who actually Lovecraft only barely mentions the King in Yellow. It's not really his thing. And yeah. um, then the other was Ambrose Bierce, who yeah. um, originally wrote Hathor, which also is something that Lovecraft doesn't really deal with. So a lot of the yeah. the members of the Lovecraft mythos that people think are quintessentially Lovecraft or Lovecraftian, he didn't really have anything to do with.
0: And. Barely
1: used them in his writings. He, like, referred to them.
0: He refers to the yellow sign a couple of times. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about Hastur. He talks about Carcosa. Hastur is Uh, mentioned once. He talks about a lot of the locations. Yes. And, and, like, hints at the cosmic... coincidence of those locations but yeah the separation between the cthulhu mythos and lovecraftian mythos it's it's interesting because like it's very much expanded and it's it's expanded i think we're in the third i think they consider the writings now the third expansion of the Cthulhu mythos the stuff that's coming out now but the second expanding was the stuff that you mentioned uh del delarith delrith uh uh, yeah
1: august delar uh thank you
0: yeah he's the one that really took off Yeah, he's the one who massively expanded a lot of the Cthulhu mythos right after. Obsessive fan that
1: ends up boiling the bunny um, for Lovecraft. (laughs) And yeah, he took off and expanded. And a lot of his stuff sort of goes against what Lovecraft did. But the other big one um, who wrote the Necroscope series of books? Oh, crap. Uh... Yeah, so Necroscope is a book of basically. Uh, the necroscope lets Brian Lumley Yeah, Lumley, Lumley, Lumley. Uh it's, yeah. it's a sort of a vampire series but sort of looking um the necroscope he his main character is the necroscope which you can talk to the dead. That's also right. um part uh, a Lovecraftian and he brings in other elements from the Lovecraftian uh, universe. And so he was a big one, but a lot of people have touched on it. And there's you know Sherlock Holmes and Lovecraft there's all the stuff that was developed for the call of Cthulhu game. Um,
0: yep. Oh yeah. None of which was developed during any portion of Lovecraft's actual life. No, no, yeah. um, I, no, no gaming fantasy gaming is a product of the seventies. Lovecraft was dead before the end of the thirties. <laughs> like, yes. Like, um, and 40s. we'll talk
1: later on about what I think is quintessentially Lovecraft and how, I see that in 40k and I can give you a hint right now. It doesn't have anything to do with great with beings from the greater beyond.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that cross over. There's a lot of inspiration points. There's a lot of leaping points that exist between the two. And we'll talk about it. But th- there is not a correlation. Cthulhu is not Nurgle and Dagon is not Korn. There is no, you know, Yog shagoth is not zinch there is no direct correlation Mm -hmm. between any of it it's much more i I, we'll talk about cosmicism which is the the existential dread stuff that lovecraft wrote from and that's really kind of what what chunks in let's jump into okay (laughs) let's jump into 40k history really quick or let's jump into the history of citadel and games workshop really quick so so come back with us in our time machine. As we go back to 1981, 1982, (laughs) and kind of talk about where everything came from. So the warp is in fact mentioned in the original Rogue Trader book. In fact, there is an entire area of the book that just deals with warp creatures. And at this point, it was a lot more of an aesthetic that the writers and designers were trying to capture. They were playing with the aesthetic of what the warp looked like, of what like chaos looked like, of what chaos warriors looked like. There wasn't none of the stuff that we know of the warp and of the four gods. If you're on Patreon with us, you can see the four gods on screen right now. None of that stuff was done when the Rogue Trader book came out. The Rogue Trader book being published in 19... 87 however mm. they knew that they wanted a lot of weird things to come from the warp and they knew that they wanted players uh, the dm and the players in rogue trader to move really quickly and really easily between the creatures and models that existed for rogue trader and for um uh, oh my god fantasy judge ba- dread, <laughs> dread well, <laughs> and fantasy, fantasy battle, battle. Yeah, any of their lines, any of the lines that Citadel was producing as a model company, Games Workshop as a publishing company wanted players to be able to use because at a certain point, they're a model. The the through line that they've said for a long time, we are a model company. They're Reaper miniatures at this point in history. Yeah. So the model ranges that we enjoyed today and at this point in Warhammer's history, they weren't being created specifically for what would become Warhammer 40K. The stuff that we know of is now, none of that existed. There weren't space marine chapters. There, there were, were space chapters. marine chapters. There weren't legions. But there were not legions. And space marines were not genetically modified super soldiers. They were just really, really violent, psychopathic people who came from very well, they hard were, planets. They were,
1: they were modified. They did have the implants and all that. Uh, by the way, they, they weren't they weren't explicitly men
0: at this point. Matter of fact, they don't yeah, anybody, use those terms. Anybody pronouns. who came Yeah. Anybody who came from a shitty death world could have in their late twenties or thirties, yeah. could have a couple of surgeries to be bonded with their armor and then and then there you go. Yeah. And it was much more that. That the idea of the whole idea of being captured from a planet when you were nine years old and going through psycho indoctrination and then having like 17 surge 21 i don't know why i said 17 21 surgeries and all of this stuff and like maybe you'll survive maybe you won't and then you'll be a 12 year old psychopathic killer that wasn't really an idea yet um no and they
1: had like you said they had a lot of science fiction miniatures that that worked with it um you know they had originally like 10 chapters so you had like rainbow warriors famously and um salamanders and uh blood angels and dark angels and pretty sure you had ultramarines white scars everybody's like where are all the the chaos space marines well there weren't any
0: yeah there weren't really chaos space marines there There, there
1: was we didn't they didn't have the whole concept of the emperor was not a a corpse on the throne. The emperor was wounded and was sitting on the throne, but he was a person. Yeah.
0: Um they didn't he develop wasn't an, that. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a little bit of talk about a civil war. Yes, what would there was become a civil the war. Heresy? Yeah. But it was a lot more I the the term renegade got used a lot more even in the early Horus Heresy, not uh, yeah. the early Era of the Horus Heresy being 3rd edition, 4th edition, 40K. There were renegade chapters. The Red Corsairs famously were a renegade chapter. The Red Corsairs mm-hmm. were not part of Chaos. Yeah. They are now. <laughs> they became it throughout their involvement in the Badab Wars, but at the beginning when the Red Corsairs as an uh, as a idea was published in A White Dwarf. They were just a renegade yeah. house. It wasn't a until um, it was in 89, I think it
1: was 89, 90, with the publish publishing of um, Space Marine One and um, Adeptus Satanicus or Titan Legions that they started mm-hmm. to talk about the heresy because that's what it was. At that point in the box, you got two sets of Marines and they had to fight each other. So why are they fighting each other? That's where the heresy, the first idea of the heresy came from. And then that's when they first came up with legions. And that's when you had, you had four legions that were traitors and you had four legions that were, um, look at the, if you can find the space Marine uh, one box, if you can't find it, I could dig it out. Um, But you had four legions and four legions because they had to fight each other. And so you had Dark Angels, Ultramarines, uh, Blood Angels, and I don't know, maybe... I, I don't remember who the fourth one was. I'm going to try to find the box? My box is not easily accessible. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah. So if you've got the back of the box, there. Let's see. If you go down, boards, you can actually see some of the different chapters. There we go. Yeah, that, we that's go. the yeah. back of the box. On the side, they had the whatever the different chapters were. And then on Chaos, you had, you know, you had Horus and you had uh, a couple others. So on the back, if you could see up here, you have the different legions. You have the Loyalist. Is it, is it the Strike Force box? No, this is. It's just called Space Marine. Warhammer 40K. 3D
0: roleplay hobby game. I think this might be. Yeah, this is the same one it's just the it's the alternate cover right it's the alternate box so here you have blood
1: angels ultramarines dark angels space wolves white scars and salamanders versus emperor's children death guard thousand sons night lords sons of horse and world eaters
0: yeah the original split that's
1: those were the original legions and until this box came out You didn't have legions.
0: Yeah, you just had chapters. You had chapters. Uh and and like the and, and we're we're going through as we're going through all the old heresy lore right now, like none of this that the whole idea that all of this came out of the original book and that like not to beat a dead horse, but the whole idea that G Dub keeps retconning they didn't they're not retconning they didn't write it yeah (laughs) you can't retcon it if it didn't exist yeah it really (laughs) they just had not they just didn't have an idea you know they they started off so they had warhammer fantasy and warhammer fantasy had dedicated models and you know in in 1988 um they talked about the realms of chaos and this is the true birth of the concept of what led to the ruinous powers And we're going to talk a little bit about Brian Ansel, who is one of the designers and all of that here in a second. But like the whole idea that the legions were different in rogue trader or in the first, first edition book, first edition 40 K app that the book that came after Warhammer 40,000 rogue trader, the whole idea that like they are introducing legions or they're introducing chapters ideas and it's erasing some giant portion of it. It's not because that stuff just not in those books. Yeah, no, it's just like, not there. There is nothing there. They had this idea at this point, you know, th- this all grew out of uh, Dungeons & Dragons, uh, you know, and, and and World War II miniature hobby wargaming mm-hmm. that the, you know, none of the games exist or none of the games are played anymore because there's newer stuff like Bolt Action and Conflict 47 and stuff that exists. But all of this stuff, all of this like militaria, board and and not board but tabletop gaming. None of this is new. But then mm-hmm. Gary Gygax released Dungeons and Dragons and there became this whole idea that you could do all of this stuff in a fantasy setting. And then like what's science fiction other than fantasy, <laughs> yeah. right? Like really <laughs> but it becomes a thing, a really common thing in even modern um war gaming in general, uh historical war gaming, is that a lot of times you have humans versus humans because that's well all of the time you have humans mm-hmm. versus humans and because humans versus humans painted different colors was a very comfortable space to be in it was a very easy way to expand the lines so you you take the 10 chapters that you originally had you cut them in half you name them legions you set 5 against 5 and you can sell a box yeah and then you have the true first edition really, of Warhammer 40K
1: yeah, and you know so right, it, it was, and the whole thing is like, well, why you have to realize this is that, the
0: epic box, that's why it looks different. Yeah. This is the epic release
1: yeah that that is um I think that's I think this is second edition, but um, the way things that you have to remember also that GW had a whole bunch of games going at the same time. And they were, they were all interconnected and they were writing
0: lore for all of them. Separately. And they were doing a lot of licensed stuff. Yeah, Like a lot of licensed stuff. <laughs> and, and because those licenses expired or because those licenses stopped producing money, but Citadel owned the rights to the models, that's how we got Lord of the Rings as a game that G-Dub owns, Games Workshop now owns. Mm-hmm. That's how we got Arbides, which are Judge Dredd yeah. in 40K, as part of 40K. And the early Arbides models and the late um, uh, 2000 AD Judge Dread models for the game, not for the comic, but for the game, look almost exactly yeah. the same. Because, again, Citadel's miniature sculptors are the guys who owned the rights to that model. You know, you change, you change the eagle from one head to two heads and you have an Arbide. Like, it's, it's that simple. Yeah.
1: And, on, and they were writing lore, you know, when things like Space Hulk came out, they had to write lore for that, and that's where you've got some of the discontinued lore for on the uh, on the Patreon podcast. We were talking about my Dark Angels army that I'm starting, and the lore for the Deathwing started in the Space Hulk um, box, and at that point, Dark Angels were Native Americans, and that story has now become apocryphal. Yeah.
0: Well, and, and, and one of the other things that's the, the way that they do stuff all the time is that like there were gene stealer orcs back in the day, the gene stealers could, could hit everything. And the way that the lore sits today is that humans are just the easiest humans are the easiest to make into gene stealers. So the gene stealers prefer to target humans. It's not that they can't target everything, And it's not that they haven't targeted everything. It's that humans are the easiest, so that's the most that exists. Yeah, and they
1: say that gene steal uh, orc hybrids smell wrong. They aren't orky enough. other orcs. So the orcs attack them. But yeah, they were uh, um, there were instructions. I've got a copy not a physical copy, but I've got a copy of the old White Dwarf where they're telling you how to uh, make gene stealer orcs.
0: Yeah, I've got, I've actually got the the PDF version yeah, of Jim Steeler yeah. works. Um, and it's, it's, it's just uh, and th- and that's the thing. Like, you know, they were purple. So shouldn't they've been like really sneaky? <laughs> should have been real hard to see, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just, it's interesting. And, and I don't, I, there's still a flavor of native American stuff with the death. I almost said death watch death wing death um, And there's definitely hints of it in Dark angels, they're yeah. not, it, it's not as overblown as it once was. And, but who knows? Will that planet come back? Will they talk about that stuff but later? They have sure. names like Moon Bear and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and a lot of it came out of the fact that, like, let's be perfectly honest, in the 1980s, the internet didn't exist. In fact, well, it did. Yeah. In the 1980s, the world wasn't as connected as it is, as it is now. And when you talk to, when you read a lot and you hear a lot, of the interviews with Rick Priestley and Brian Ansell and a lot of the other uh, Steve Jackson, the Steve Jackson from Europe, not the Steve Jackson, the Steve Jackson games in the United States. Um, and Ian Livingston, when you talk, when you read things that all of these guys who are involved with what became Warhammer 40 K and Warhammer fantasy battle talk, a lot of the times they say, well, well, yeah, of course we did that because that was popular and popular culture in the eighties. And that was what we knew in London yeah so the weird Native American standard was the well we don't really understand that you know that culture that culture is so far removed from ours but what's really popular cowboys versus Indian movies okay let's play with that idea you know, And then you find out in the 90s, okay, maybe some of that was a bit tasteless, tone it down a little bit, and then you tone it down a little bit. It's not that it's gone. It's that the company has made decisions to become more yep. thoughtful of the people yeah. who play their game.
1: I, I have a friend who has been Unless living in warrior. England for they 20 <laughs> years, um, married to uh, another friend of ours, a uh, lovely English lady. They have a couple of, of kids. Um, I was just visiting them the other day, and they, they talk about – american culture overseas and how english culture has been um diluted through american media and all and the thing is you do get american culture was really becoming widespread back then but it was through a lens i mean still try to get a try to get a burrito in um in london It's not good any sort of mexican food
0: i mean you I try to get a Burrito, not in Southern California.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah,
0: I, I, I don't want a Midwestern taco. Um, actually, actually, we found a place that's really good. As ca- as California transplants, we found a place that's really good. There's, but anyway, there's a place um, in it, the city hunt. next to my my wife's grandmother, Windsor.
1: I actually live in right outside Windsor, California, but she lives right outside Windsor, UK, and that's where we go a, a couple times a year. But there's a I don't know if it's a chain or not, but it's the California burrito shop. And I keep on saying, I should stop in there just to see what it's like.
0: Just check it out. Maybe it's somebody from Baja, California. You never know. Um, Because that's the thing. The place that we found that's really good is it's people from Mexico. Yeah. And like... It happens, you know, It, it uh, transplants happen. But there's also a lot of like, there is an idea, there's a worldwide idea that the burrito is the bean and cheese and ground beef thing that Taco Bell makes. Yeah. So,
1: But, you know, getting back to 40K, I mean, this is, this is also yeah. what we don't understand from the US is that we don't understand that orcs are football hooligans. And, right. and people don't even know what football hooligans are, so they don't even get that reference.
0: Um they and if you don't get that reference, watch Green Street Hooligans, the movie, with Elijah Wood and Charlie, the dude from Charlie Hannon, the dude that's from like uh what was the Sons know. of Anarchy made him really popular. But like it's it's orcs. Yeah. Like watch it, it's orcs. It's, it's orcs. just and a bunch it, of dudes also, fighting all the time. <laughs> and and it, it was flavored through um the punk
1: scene in the right. early eighties. That's why you had the checks and, and the spikes and all. Um you really see the different parts of the, um, Imperium coming out from what Britain was going through politically at that
0: time. Um, yeah. And a lot of it, it, a lot of the, the really, really that, you know, there's a lot of brutalists. There's a lot of brutalism, I should say, not brutalist, but a lot of brutalism. There's a lot of Gothic, uh, uh, Gothic movement, mm neo-Gothic movement stuff that's in 40 K. um, the uh, the uniforms, especially the early uniforms for the Imperial Guard, was very reminiscent of the French in World War One. It's it's actually really funny because a lot of people have a very negative gut reaction. A lot of people who are not Warhammer fans have a very weird and negative reaction to the Kriegsman uniform because to them it calls up this idea of Nazi Germany, which is weird. Because the Kriegsman uniform is actually based on French World War One trench uniforms and has nothing other than the Pilth helmet with the spike Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Germany. And the Pilth helmet with the spike was only something that the Germans used up into the first couple of years of World War One. It was not something that even anyway. Yeah. It's Prussian. You, it's not if even you want, something if that you left.
1: Wanna, if you want to see something uh, that deals with the uh the army uh of the guy with the funny mustache. The fun- <laughs> um, yeah. look up the early Storm Boy sculpts.
0: Orc Storm yeah. Boys. Uh, the Mordians are very uh you know, you know SS Gestapo style uniforms. Mm-hmm. But again, like a lot of this stuff is just what militaria yeah. was in the 70s and 80s, and and like the punk mu uh, the punk music movement specifically, David Bowie, the Ramones, um who who were New York Jews, uh you know and just just a couple of other handfuls um um of guys that I can think of uh, uh shit Iggy Pop there we yeah. go, <laughs> Bowie Iggy the Ramones a lot of the early punk music stuff they would gravitate towards the world war one world war two excuse me um access powers uh, uniforms as well specifically the the nazi gear because they were being shocking and they were being weird and they were embracing that brutalistic outlook on life yeah
1: and the, the imperium of man was very much the the way that the uh the British government was and is set up with the church of England and all that. I mean, yep. it, it's very much yep. goes through that. Um, maybe we should get
0: back to it, chaos and the warp. <laughs> it, defi- definitely. Yeah. Cause like, cause we, yeah, this, this is the thing that we return to is like, why, why is the Warhammer 40 K, uh, uh, empire, um, really fasci- fascist? Well, because the punks that were making games in the eighties didn't like the fact yeah. that the government was kind of, uh, overbearing. <laughs> and well, they and were let, making let's a do, statement we move
1: away from it, just the one thing yeah. that we need to acknowledge and that uh, GW has been trying to acknowledge is that while they were making at the beginning they were making a social commentary against fascism and government fascism it has been embraced by some elements of the hobby and we have to make sure yeah. that we move away from that. Yeah. So,
0: hey, so to get back to the big book, the yeah. book that started it all was the Realms of Chaos book, which was written and released in 19... Well, it was written before it was released in 1988. It was a supplement for Warhammer Fantasy Battle, but it's really where a lot of the image, the aesthetic for Chaos, the Chaos Warriors, came from. Um, but
1: it was also a supplement for second edition. <laughs> yeah, Trader.
0: <laughs> uh, 40K, because it had rules yep. for both. The book was split. Yep. Yeah, the warp, the, warp, uh, the warp in Chaos was, for a while, the, the books that came out were meant for both. So to, to quote Brian Ansel, who is one of the designers, in an interview about the design process itself, Michael Moorcock was an influence and inspiration. Michael Moorcock and Tolkien cast a massive shadow over the whole fantasy industry. In my case, Jack Vance and Clark Ashton Smith were equally important. Mm-hmm. I don't think our vision of Chaos Warriors overlaps much with Michael Moorcock, although we did occasionally borrow his arrow symbol. For me, all the roots of the Chaos Warriors that Citadel made over the years lie with Frank Frazada's Death Dealer painting and sketches. And if you are on Patreon, we have the Death Dealer up right now, and there is a model in the current Chaos Fantasy line. And I think it's a fine cast resin model. They haven't made it a plastic yet, but it's a very, very famous model that is 100% the Death Dealer. Anyway, the first few Chaos Warriors that Tony Auckland made at Asgard and also some of the ones that Stan Proach made and John Blanche's scanties from the early 80s all kind of go back to this idea of the Frank Fazata Death Dealer. Mm-hmm. I think that the first fantasy story I read were the Faraway tree tales by Edin Blayton. When I discovered fantasy science fiction and historical fiction in the 1960s, Moorcock wasn't visible enough yet to make it into my local library. I was enthusiastic about Jack Fance, Clark Ashton Smith, Harry Harrison, Fritz Lieber, Keith Lamar, James Blish, Robert Shakley, Brian Andalus, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Kurt Vonnegut, Robert Heinlein, T.H. White, Cyril Judd, Fritz Lieber, Philip K. Dick, and others. Also, Russell Thorndike, Raphael Sabati, Hubert Cole, Alfred Dugan, Mary Renault, Henry Terrace, Jeffrey Terce, and Leslie Chardis. So, this is just like this is Brian talking about everything that inspired yeah. how he designed the models. So,
1: it's interesting. So, I knew. I've read almost all of them, except for when he goes into also.
0: Yeah, yeah. The also ones, I don't quite know. And like, we've already talked about Robert Heidland. We've talked, we haven't done an episode on Kurt Vonnegut, but we've talked about Kurt Vonnegut. We've mentioned Edgar Rice Burroughs already. Uh, Philip K. Dick. Man, there's some weirdness there that we'll probably need to talk to uh, about at some point. But this is all of the, the miasma that was going around, when they were writing the book Realms of Chaos, the first Realms of Chaos. There's I think there are three Realms of Chaos books in the original publications, and now, you know, you can still find them. Um, so he goes on to say I didn't discover Moorcock until the Hawkwind books in the early 70s. Tandem was publishing James Branch Cable and getting him to me via W. H. Smith at the round about the same time that Moorcock appeared on the scene. So I still associated them with each other. I don't think that Cable has had any influence on my fantasy gaming, but I'm quite obsessed with him and recommend Figures of Earth, The Silver Stallion, and Jurgen to anybody who might enjoy um, poetic Edwardian prose and sly wit. So I definitely see where James Branch Cable came in to some of his stuff just, just continuing down the trend. But it's interesting to kind of hear from the man himself what some of this was. I was just um, trying to look up the age of these guys because we've oh they were all kids in the sixties.
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> so well, I think they're just like a couple of years older than I am.
0: I was trying. They're to... definitely upper cusp X slash boomers, like whatever that that weird micro generation is i believe they're all kind so of when from
1: there. um in 89 when this came out right 88 89 uh 88 88 i just graduated college right right i graduate well i would have graduated college in 88 if i didn't take me five years to get through so i graduated in 89 <laughs> so i was 22 and I'm looking at pictures of them at the Games Workshop. They were not that old.
0: Yeah, they they were like 25, 26. Like they, they were not much older. Um, I was eight, if it makes you feel better. <laughs> I was getting into all of this yeah, stuff. Makes, I was getting makes into, me into feel the art side of it. Uh, Does it make your knees hurt a little bit?
1: <laughs> no, but when I go on my... When I when I go on my on my six mile trail run tomorrow, I'll, I'll think about you because I know that you can't, they're, they're... you aren't doing that right
0: now. <laughs> uh, uh, well, my my um since COVID uh, weird weird aside, since COVID my lungs haven't really like gotten all the way back to where I want them it, it to be. It took me it took me a couple of months, but I got. I know people that
1: are suffering from long COVID. Yeah, you know, I have to say so that the... the Frazetta stuff that you put up um is stirring old feelings, but you aren't putting up the ones with the bikini clad or the bare breasted women. That was I probably should say that. I'm
0: specifically bringing up the Frank Frazada stuff that uh, kind of inspired the look of the Chaos <laughs> and Chaos Marauders. <laughs> not not quite the um, the cheesecake stuff that definitely fits a little bit more into Conan the Barbarian's realm. So while the book Realms of Chaos does outline the four entities that would become the Chaos Gods, this is still the very early stages of the, of their development, and it was mostly a drive towards the look. So a lot of it had more to do with how the models looked and a lot less to what the world-building side would be. It's also probably important to point out that at this time, the Chaos line was very, very popular. And mm-hmm. people bought them for all sorts of other things, including D&D games and all of the other like one-shots and splats that Games Workshop was publishing. This is the late 80s, where Games Workshop and Citadel were sister companies, with Games Workshop publishing books And Citadel making miniatures. Citadel at this point was a lot more like Reaper, if you guys are familiar with Reaper miniatures today. The miniatures were targeted at the Warhammer and Dungeons and Dragons fandom, but they were made to fit anything in this fantasy or science fiction genre. And that's kind of how Reaper is now. Reaper is very targeted at Filling the niche of people need D D miniatures. People need fantasy gaming miniatures. Reaper has their own, I believe free rules or, or they did. I don't know if they do anymore, but at one point they did have their own free rule book. And there was at one point Reaper books you could buy, but Reaper is a miniatures company. Citadel is a miniatures company. Games workshop Which is now, which now owns both of them. There is now one company. (laughs) There has been synergy. Um, At this point, they're a publishing company. So Games Workshop is writing, is republishing Dungeons and Dragons. They're writing their own one shots. They're publishing uh, 2000 AD. They're publishing a couple of other uh, games. But by and large, Games Workshop does books and Citadel does Mm -hmm. miniatures when this book is being written. Yeah. Well, another uh, further quote of Brian Ansel on this entire process kind of goes into where the names for the gods came from, which I thought was pretty interesting. I actually knew a lot of it, but I think it's interesting to hear it from him. So Nurgle is an actual god. Nurgle is a Babylonian god, and it's it's N-E-R-G-A-L, Nurgle. Nergal, not Nurgle, is a Babylonian god whose Dates back to prehistoric times. He was still around to be worshipped by the Assyrians. They changed the spelling because I thought Nergal was more amusing. Also, it could be the sound of a death rattle or air being expelled from a rotting putrescent carcass. Nergal was a god of death, disease, and pestilence. Also a god of war and ruler of the underworld. Sometimes also his wife would be depicted this way. As he had been around for a very long time, his attributes have changed back and forth over the years. I'm sure he's extremely pleased that we still are thinking of him. Perhaps with all the attention, we might eventually conjure up a physical manifestation. (laughs) An old Babylonian god would be uh, creepy. So he goes on to say corn was derived from Conan's crom, who is an actual Celtic god who can also be spelled crom or cram. Slanish was meant to be a sibilant, erotic, breathy, whispered or murmured sound. The models didn't quite turn out as erotically charged as I had hoped. Yeah, no, Zinch was back in the day. Yeah, yeah. none of them were that <laughs> yeah, good back in the day. <laughs> yeah, uh, there, was, there, there he got his time. He got his answer in the '90s yeah. for a short amount of time. Zinch was meant to sound like a spell blasting out, like a Doctor Strange comic. It also has a sort of Aztec feel, which goes with the feathers and bright pastel colors that Zinch has. We didn't plan any other powers during my time, other than perhaps the gods of law and uh, Malal, who obviously is gone, doesn't exist currently. And eventually Ansel was actually involved in the moves to consolidate Games Workshop and Citadel into one company, which was then based in Nottingham. And it's pretty close to what we know today. Although today, a lot of that original crew has either left or retired with that move, the idea of Warhammer Fantasy and Warhammer 40K as standalone games became much closer to reality. And with that came a lot of structure and world building. And that's kind of our aim today as we get into um HP Lovecraft. So to continue with some of these old guys' quotes, we'll go to You've some got a quotes lot of from of old Rick guys' Priestley. quotes in here. <laughs> I do, I do. It's kind of to really set up the fact that like we're coming from a place, guys. This is a thing. <laughs> Rick Priestley says, When we developed Warhammer in the early days, Richard and I incorporated a lot of science fiction elements into it. The world as we wrote it was created by a space-faring race called the SLAN, and they'd terraformed and bioengineered it into a present state. Coincidentally, it conforms to an archetype which looks a bit like our own world. So it begs the question, is Earth another planet that had been created by the SLAN? We were inspired by things like Philip Jose Farmer's World of Tears, which is a series of books about artificial creation. Uh, is It's a good, uh, it's
1: a artificially created world. It's a good series. Thank you. Or at least I remember yeah. it being good. I don't know if I would still say it's good if I reread it today, but <laughs> Philip Jose Farmer
0: yeah. uh, was a great writer. And I used to love those books. Um, There's also a lot of the kind of things in the Kofulu mythos as well. The great old ones and the galaxy spanning races going back to E.E. Doc Smith. You've got these two civilizations that go out and seed the entire galaxy. Warhammer world is essentially conceived as a science fiction world, which had gone the fantasy route. Mm -hmm. Um, He continues in the same interview to say, one of the briefs that I had to respect was that I had to make up rules for all the science fiction models as we made them. For example, we had a judge dread license and people had Judge dread miniatures. So they had to be able to use them in the game. They also had a BBC license. So we had Daleks and Cybermen. We also had a Call of Cthulhu license, so we had all of these Call of Cthulhu monsters, and we had the D&D license, so I had to include all the D&D monsters. I ended up with a list as long as my arm. If you look through the original Rogue Trader book, you'll see all of those things are in it. Judges are there as Arbides, Daleks are there as Exterminators, displacer beasts are there is something i can't even remember and uh, you can you can go into the warp creatures and see all this stuff i don't remember the eliminators i'm gonna have to go i'm gonna have to pull up my copy and take a look at that oh the the it's the dalek exterminators um i can't remember what they kind of became further on but they're they're in it it, yeah go back and look it's it's pretty fun but as we all know and chalk and i have already talked about earlier in the episode the conflict that is at the core of Warhammer and Warhammer 40K, eventually settled into a balance of the forces of the Emperor, an immortal corpse, and the forces of Chaos. And this is about the time where the idea of him being dead and stuck on a throne and dying was introduced. As Chalk mentioned earlier, you know, Rogue Trader, he's a guy who's wounded. First edition, he's essentially quasi-dead and on a throne. Like, it was a very, you know... You're, you're looking at 88 to 90, maybe. Yeah. Like it, it was that fast. It, it happened that quickly. It happened in the next revision, essentially. And it met a need. You know, historical wargaming had been my brown guys versus your blue guys. And people that were playing 40K wanted my brown space marines versus your blue space marines. So Games Workshop, now the merged company, was like, well, how do we meet that need? I was just looking. I just pulled up my copy of Rogue Trader. Hey, you're look, looking through it i have mine right here look at that look at this
1: yeah i understand we can get
0: a, a printed copy of it i know I, I went through all of this hard trouble to get somebody i knew in england to buy it for me and send it to me uh, which they did go, go which to i'm Warhammer very World and picking yeah. it up for you yeah only for them to like eight months later be like hey we're gonna sell it <laughs> but it's only limited so there is a chance yeah it's so Nottingham is too sweet. far north. I don't usually
1: get up there when I'm in England. Yeah, yeah. I did drag my wife into a Warhammer point. store, uh, and her friend, and my wife is trying to explain to our friend 40k what it, what this is by not actually knowing what it is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I'm always kind of tickled by the like, what do our wives and our girlfriends think these things are? You show them a picture and then you have them kind of explain it from like the little bit of like excess knowledge that they've gotten from sitting in the same room with us crazy people. Yeah, it's always amusing. It's it's always very amusing. So Priestley goes on to further explain. Originally, the chaos warriors and demons and gods were created by Brian Ansell. We already read some quotes by him. He wrote a supplement for Warhammer first edition called realms of chaos. And it was inspired by Michael Moorcock books where you have gods of law and the gods of chaos. Brian replicated the idea of chaos as this mutating thing in creating his four gods, Korn, Nurgle, Zinch and Slanish. I was always a bit worried about the fact that it was so close to Michael Moorcock. So I merged in the idea of the chaos gods with the idea of primal chaos, from a kind of medieval Renaissance background, more specifically as depicted in Milton's Paradise Lost. It describes primal gods as lying between heaven and hell, and Earth is basically hanging within chaos. Lucifer is cast into hell and falls through chaos, and that just brings out all of this really interesting story stuff. Yeah. That's how we get the mix of how early chaos developed. The art style of Frank Frazada, with the fictional cues from Moorcock and Robert E. Howard, a dose of Lovecraftian cosmic horror and a helping of Milton's Paradise Lost. And I want to say, Chalk, we've talked about this before, but if you are kind of wondering where the story beats of the Horace Heresy came from, it is sci-fi Paradise Lost. Yeah. No, it, it, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. is. So close. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but today, we're here to talk about Lovecraft. And we, we set up where a lot of these ideas came from, And now we're ready to talk more directly about Lovecraft. So let's give you some context into who Howard Phillips Lovecraft was. He was an American writer of weird science, fiction, fantasy, and horror. He is best known for his creation of the Cthulhu mythos. He was born in Providence, Rhode Island, and he spent most of his early life, or actually most of his life in entirety, in New England. However, his father was institutionalized in 1893, And he was able to live a upper class lifestyle really being an inheritor of his family's wealth until it dissipated after the death of his grandfather. And it's a little hazy was a lot of it spent on the health of his father and on the health of his grandfather. And that's why it went away. Or, you know, grandfather dies. All the kids fight over it. Lovecraft is too young to really benefit from any of that. But he then went to living with his mother. And they were very poor. And then his mother was institutionalized in 1919. It's around this time that he began to write essays for the United Amateur Press Association. And he kind of went back and forth writing for pulp magazines and being more involved with pulp fiction. He became active later in speculative fiction community and was published in several pulp magazines He moved to New York, marrying Sonia Green in 1924, and later became the center of a wider group of authors known as the Lovecraft Circle. They introduced him into Weird Tales, which became his most prominent publisher. Lovecraft's time in New York took a toll on him mentally and financially, and he eventually returned to Providence in 1926 and produced some of his most popular works, including The Call of Cthulhu, At the Mountains of Madness, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, and The Shadow Out of Time. He remained active as a writer for another 11 years until he died of cancer at 46 years old. So Lovecraft passed away in the late 40s, early 50s. His writing is based on the idea of cosmicism, which was also simultaneously his own philosophy. Cosmicism kind of suggests that humanity is this insignificant part of the cosmos that can be swept away at any moment. He incorporated his fantasy and science fiction elements into these stories and into his philosophy, representing the perceived fragility of our existence, of what humanity means to be. Um, without getting further into, or, or well, do you want to talk about <laughs> Lovecraft, or do we want to deal with the elephant in the room? <laughs> uh, about uh, his... What's, should we tear the bandage off, <laughs> so uh, he was not unique in his view of
1: of a of a, ni- of a white man in the 1920s.: <laughs> Yeah of an upper class white man in the 1920s. Um, yeah, His writing is um at the best, not complimentary, and at the worst, outright racist at times. Racist, yeah yeah i don't anti-semitic
0: was... racist yeah yeah it's, he it's talks all...
1: about um these sort of dark swarthy races he talks about these degenerate uh races and how um and it usually that encompasses and it, it, in these days he's not just talking about like people of african extraction he's talking about like italians and jews and
0: all these sorts of things um basically if this yeah this is a time period where phrenology was accepted oh yeah like like yeah
1: um this was also Um, at the beginning of um really uh learning about evolution and all you know darwin was in the 1850s or whatever didn't publish to the end of his life and so there's this big movement of, yeah, sort of like trying to categorize peoples through evolutionary means. It's As an anthropologist, I can tell you it's all bullshit. Everybody yeah, is yeah. the same. <laughs> there are no separate races. Those are all social constructs. And they're just a way that we use to separate ourselves from each other and to rank people lower than ourselves.
0: Um, and then— in the miasma of, uh, you know, cosmicism is a, I'm, I'm looking for the word, like a splinter, really. It's like a cult. It's it's not really a cult, but it's like a cult mentality. And in the um, spiritualism, that's what I was looking yeah, for. Uh, cosmicism is like a type of spiritualism. And, and in the spiritualists' movement, you know, Madame Blavatsky and Al, uh, Aleister Crowley, like none of these people had really nice things to say about people that weren't white <laughs> yeah
1: so there were there were two major themes that run through lovecraft's works and i'm talking specifically about lovecraft not lovecraftian in his works the, the two themes are humans are insignificant when he talks about insects yeah the great old ones I mean, if you're walking down the street, you might see a bug and you might decide to step on it or you might decide to step around it. They don't even do that. They just walk down the street. Uh, We are completely insignificant. So there's a little bit of a difference. People describe the chaos gods as being like Lovecraft's great old ones, but they're not because the chaos gods are too involved with
0: what goes on with humans. There the, is... the Slan, the, the great old ones in 40K mm-hmm. that, that are the ones who created the Slan are the great old ones yes. from C- the Cthulhu mythos. They, they created everything, and now they're gone. Yeah. There is only <laughs> one deity
1: in Lovecraft's works, and it's uh, with uh, Randolph Carter in the Dreams of Unknown Cardiff and his Dream Cycle. Who actually seems to care about humans or interact with them in any way. And that is gnarly hope tip. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so you sort of have this: humans are insignificant. They, they just don't even register with the great old ones. And then you have the cults that worship these beings. The great old ones. And they yeah. are usually um degenerates. They are groups of people who are inbred in the swamps who have sort of have mutations and have degenerated uh, they mentally they're not fit they've got weird physical deformities they've got all this and of course that also ties in with Innsmouth if you um read
0: that story
1: but so now the
0: shadow the shadow over Insmith deals very specifically with uh, a cult to Dagon who's yes. one of these entities and and what? Uh Dagon what happens isn't one of those entities. Part. Dagon is a lesser uh, he's not We don't even know what Dagon is. Um there's sort of... I have the full BC right, I'm pulling it up. Keep going. <laughs> so
1: you have Mother Dagon who is uh, you you have the, the mother and the father we don't know if they're just like more advanced old ones. Not old ones, deep ones, sorry. More advanced deep ones or older deep ones. We don't know if they're actually gods. And he never really says it in the books. Anywhere yeah, in the books. They're just other things. They're other things. See, that's the
0: whole thing. Lovecraft doesn't actually explain a lot of this. He just puts it because out that's, there. And that's kind of the point. That's the point yes. of cosmicism is that we don't understand it. So the, the, the Lovecraft... Bestiary, if you will, is split. And this is the expanded.
1: Uh, and a lot ethos. of the lore that goes into this was not written by Lovecraft. This has been written. It was written later.
0: Later. Yeah. That's why I because said like, there's a difference between Lovecraft and Lovecraftian. And a lot of times, what Lovecraft did, uh, uh, epic before Games Workshop existed, Games Workshop move, Lovecraft was a master at the one, the hanging one liner. Yeah. And, and it's through extrapolation of the hanging one-liner that everything else kind of exists. So the outer gods are um, are Azazoth, Yogshagoth, all of like the kind of crazy, big ones that he talks about. the great old ones, which are like below the outer gods. That's where Cthulhu falls. That's where Dagon right. falls. And then there are servitor, there are lesser servitor races, greater servitor races, greater independent races, and lesser independent races. And this gets into like uh, everything else. Um, the Migo is a lesser independent race. The I think they're just called the old ones. They're just what are they in the mountains to man in the mountains of madness? They're, they're just called they're, the old ones, right?
1: Uh, they're the old ones or the. Because there's a difference the between the old ones and the elder ones.
0: I think they're just called the old the elder, ones. The elder ones. They're the elder ones. Yeah. So the elder things, the elder things, things the elder yeah. things that they come across in the Mountains of Madness are a lesser servitor race. So they're a race of... They're like they're like men before men existed, essentially. They, 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 basically... Um, they're aliens. Yeah, but, they're yeah, aliens. Yeah. And so are the they're Miko.
1: Um, and so are a bunch of those. They aren't necessarily hooked directly into the mythos they, they they're just star-spanning aliens
0: who have landed there's, on earth yeah or yeah or or things that got ripped out and are now attacking us the color out of space yeah. and the, all of this stuff kind of gets into it. and there, there's a really great i've got it pulled up right now if you're part of our patreon you can see it there's kind of a great bestiary that goes across like what everything is and, and there's how a timeline there also with yeah. when they're on earth yeah To get back to something you were saying, because I have a question for you, and I actually think, we kind of talked in our production side meeting, we kind of talked about how we were going to argue over a couple of things, and I actually think we're a lot more aligned than, than you realized, but in your estimation, a lot of the influences that came from Lovecraft, or the Lovecraftian mythos, the Cthulhu mythos, is the fact that there are these old ancient things that humans find and decide to worship. Not that these old ancient things give a shit about. Man. Yes.
1: They don't yeah. actually interact with even in 40 K they, the, the chaos gods don't, they only care about the wars in the, uh, in the materium as to how that interacts the bigger war in the immaterial. Yeah. They don't what, really how does it
0: benefit them?
1: care what goes on here, but so a lot of the stuff that I see that has the greatest link to forty k is the cults and the mutants and all that are worshiping other things.
0: So, and usually those other things are some bastardization of the actual right. ancient god. So, I think
1: that Lovecraft really ties into. Like, I think there are a lot of Lovecraft um, images and associations within the uh, the Inquisitor series, the expanded Inquisitor series. And you've got the King in Yellow up there, which is not Lovecraft, but it Even is earlier, Lovecraftian. Yeah.
0: Because it, it, it's, yeah. it's he, part of the expanded mythos. <laughs> yes,
1: it was written. The King in Yellow is a play that when people read it they go crazy and the book the king in yellow has four acts in it um mm-hmm. the first act basically a guy reads it and he thinks he is the emperor of a alternate america in the 1920s
0: yep. um the second the, one the king in Before you go any further, so The King in Yellow is written by Robert W. Chambers, and it's nine short stories and several poems. It was released in 1895, but as Chalk just said, even though it's these different short stories and these poems, it's all a four-act play. Yeah, It's short stories that all lead into this four-act play. And
1: you only ever hear about stuff through the end of act one. Because if you read more yes. than the act one, you go crazy. You you go nuts. And then yeah. Lovecraft references it and he references things like the Lake of Holly and some other some locations, but he doesn't actually it's he did not write The King in Yellow. He did not yeah, The King in Yellow isn't his idea. It isn't yeah. his idea. It has been um, it has been thought, or the inference is that the King in Yellow is Haster, which is one of the Lovecraft gods. But Haster is is a entity that was written by Ambrose Bierce before Lovecraft. And Lovecraft only basically what Lovecraft him. does is he name drops. It. Yes. People, yeah. he talks about these books that mention these places, and he names drops these places from earlier and books and entities
0: from earlier authors, but he doesn't expand on them. And a lot of this stuff all feeds into The philosophy of cosmicism, the the idea that we are insignificant in the true machinations of the universe. The universe doesn't care about a singular entity, a singular person. We are a blip. It's like an extreme version of nihilism. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And all of these, you know... the King in Yellow, E.E. Uh, e. Cummings had written some stuff too that had even come out um, around, uh, not E.E. E. Cummings. I, I can't remember. I E.E. E. Cummings is the name that I'm associating with, but I'm pretty sure E.E. E. Cummings was was uh, in the 1900s. But there was another 1800s author that also kind of circled around this stuff. Edgar Allan Poe, uh, mm-hmm. The The Mask of the Red Death, The Fall of the House of Usher. There's all sorts of other cosmic weirdness that happens to humans that humans internalize is being focused on them. They internalize. I am the focus. This is out to get me. But if you peel back the layer of the story that the author is writing, the humans are just accidentally in the way of something much greater that's been happening. Um, Or in the case with some of Lovecraft's stories, they're dealing with something that appears to be godlike, but in the actual breakdown of the bestiary of the mythos is nowhere near the top. <laughs> yeah. Like, like like the Migo, for instance, or the, the Elder Things, they're just weird aliens. Yeah. They're just weird Xenos. They're not they're not gods. they and like, why do the Elder Things pull apart the crew in the mountains to madness? They all their things pull up out the crew in the mountains to madness because the crew autopsies one of their dead. And then they're like, well, we don't know what these things are either. So we're going to autopsy yeah. one of them right, not, not autopsy. What's it called when it's done, when you're alive, Vivsection. there's a name. vivisection Yeah. <laughs> to vivisect a couple of the dudes. Uh, yeah,
1: And these are, so most of what um, Lovecraft wrote were quite short stories. He did write a couple of what we consider to be novellas novellas at the mountains of madness was probably a a novella uh call of cthulhu is someplace in there but it's not long we're talking about like 80 pages
0: um i mean the entire expanded the the entire writings of hp lovecraft are to give you guys an idea i have i have it up on my shelf the entire writings of hp lovecraft are as thick as the first book in game of thrones yeah as a hardback book, so uh, it's it's a couple thousand pages, it's pretty close to three thousand pages. But th- I mean, like, there isn't a two thousand page novel about Cthulhu. No, Cthulhu is a short. Uh, Cthulhu is actually mentioned more than once, but Cthulhu is mentioned in brief in different conversations. Cthulhu is not ever, and that's kind of the way. If I can posit something, that the Actual chaos gods act. They're mentioned, they're there. Corn is there, and you can run into Corn. Is Corn trying to kill a guardsman unit? Absolutely not. Corn doesn't give a shit. Is Corn trying to destroy the corpse emperor and bring all of humanity to end? Yes. Is he doing it because he doesn't like humans? No. He's doing it because he needs the blood to power himself. Like he needs that. None of it is done because he doesn't like you. Yeah. (laughs) It's just done as part of what he is. The things in the warp, the things in Warhammer 40 K and in Warhammer fantasy that interact with the chaos entities that interact and are selfish and have these are demons. They are demon princes. They are greater. They're that. They're that alien thing. That's the level that they're at. They give a crap about human politics because they're not that far removed from human politics. And some of them were human. Yes. And very it, recently. Yes.
1: <laughs> and they're and not 10,000 years ago, because remember they're in the warp and time flows differently. They were, they were right. humans maybe
0: a couple hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. And some of them like Abaddon aren't actually trying to do, I mean, they're, they're are using the chaos gods as a tool to get their own ends. Yeah. And that, that comes into that, like that cult thing. But yeah, that, I, I, I am very much in agreement with you. The, the majority of it to me seems to be in the things that humans do when they find something they're not supposed yeah. to know about.
1: So in, in, um, in the shadow over in you have a sea captain that finds an idol and starts using that to communicate with the uh, race of old ones and the old ones say bring we'll bring you gold if basically deep, if you bring ones. us the deep ones, if you bring us virgins, basically, and they interbreed and then they start to degenerate and become mutants um in the call of Cthulhu, it starts out with a um an idol that is found deep in the swamps of Louisiana by this sort of degenerate tribe that is worshiping it so what i was saying is we don't actually know what cthulhu looks like we have an you've got an image if you're a patreon uh member we've got an image on the screen of cthulhu and it's always basically a giant bat winged uh monstrosity bipedal with uh an octopus face basically but that's what the idol looks like that's worshiped in the um in the story call of cthulhu but when you actually read the description in the book, it's just sort of this towering yeah, shadow. It's, that's it's moving this in the weird background. thing,
0: and like he he uh, appears in dreams, and and it's humanity is like the fever dream of Cthulhu. Um, yeah, like yeah, it's it's it, the concept of what Cthulhu is is very interesting, and and it's all that sort of it it worms its way, you know, the the dreams of this this God may have birthed humanity and at the same time is worming its way. It's not even a God, this great elder thing and it's worming its way into the dreams of humans. And then humans are worshiping it. And that's, that's so much the way that like, when you read, you brought up the inquisitor series. So we'll go back to the the inquisitor mm-hmm. series by Dan Abnett. When you read about how these cults start, when you read the the clues, it's that, It's not that direct thing, but it's that theme, this idea that like I had this weird inspiration. I had this night terror and this night terror let me in on a cosmic truth. And now that I have this cosmic truth, I know more than the authorities do. I know more than the sanctioned religion does. So I'm going to go off and become my own thing. And like this goes back to Logar and the fact that Logar is looking into what is the primordial truth, what is the primordial basis, the theme that runs through the Cthulhu mythos, the expanded past Lovecraft, the the expanded Cthulhu mythos that's being kind of wrapped up into popular modern culture, is the fact that when you start to poke and look at those dark things, those dark things take a notice of you and they start to manipulate mm-hmm. you to their end. And that's really where Lovecraft and the Warp crossover.
1: Yeah. So if you look at, I think it is the second book in the Ravener trilogy by uh, it's and Dan uh, Abnett. Yeah, Dan Abnett. All of them? yeah, it's Abnett. Okay, so um, Ravener is, is the Inquisitor and he's got an interrogator who um, they're they're going after these people that are trans uh, that are trafficking in this drug, which are these what they're calling they call them glints, flex. they're little shards flex. of glass, flex. And when you look into these flex, these little shards of glass, you see visions of what you're actually doing. These are chaos tainted, and you're seeing a vision from chaos. And the interrogator gets hooked on these. And by looking in them, he opens a doorway for chaos to enter him. And he ends up com- hosting he becomes a, demon. a demon host. He becomes a demon host.
0: Um, and it's, it's so insidious, too, because the flecks are only in circulation because a set of planets got pulled into the warp and they were exposed. So, so the flecks are glass on demon worlds that are in the warp that are really close to the sector that the story takes place in that were basically like, like think of like a nuclear explosion happens and all the glass gets blasted out. But because it all gets blasted out, it becomes tainted. But the people that went to those planets didn't go to get the glass. They had no idea the glass was going to become a psychotropic drug. They were going to get the machinery of the Adaptus Mechanicus and of the Adaptus Administratum that was left on those planets to sell those machines on the black market. So the flex are a side effect of a side effect. And that's, it's so Lovecraftian <laughs> because the, yeah. the bad thing that starts the whole story or starts the whole process is usually actually pretty bad. But like the thing that makes the dude go nuts and become a demon is like the tertiary side effect. <laughs> yeah. And actually
1: I think the um overall, I think the the expanded Inquisitor, it's now yep. nine books. Well, it's eight. It's nine eight. is coming nine out books. soon. Nine's coming out. Um is actually has a really follows a lot of the Lovecraft theme. <laughs> well, I I mean the entire And you ha- you have cults yeah. and mutants and um All these sorts of things. And it's, of course, ending up with the whole king in yellow. Yep. um, Which, by the way, if you don't have me on that discussion, I'll be very (laughs) angry. Um,
0: I I have a feeling that's going to be a discussion between the two. Uh, at, At some point, we will do... The Eisenhorn series, the Ravener series, and the Patient—not mm-hmm. Patient's Kiss. Patient Kiss is a is a site. The Beckwin series. We'll talk Beckwin. about all three of them, so, yeah. um, and that'll definitely be a, a conversation... That'll be a you and I uh, conversation with with with, uh, with you and I with guests, not <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah yeah. Um, so I and not
1: not to ruin, but I think where they're all going towards looking at the end is the equivalent of like maybe Lost Carcosa or maybe. I think it's part. I think they're riffing on the dream, he Abnett's
0: riffing on the dream cycle. I definitely do, and and I think that I think oh, even oh, Paddeth, or yeah yeah I think even the the big reveal at the end of book eight is is done as a false positive or as yeah. a it, because i think even if even if that person's body is the vessel for this thing i don't think that person is involved anymore his body might be but i don't think that person exists anymore and i, I don't want to it the book came yeah. out recently enough that to name drop is going to spoil stuff no. but uh, you yeah. can
1: find the internet if you want
0: yeah, who the king in yellow is? Who the king in it, yellow revealed. is supposed
1: to be? I think I think it's false Suppo- also. That, yes. Um, yeah. I've come up with a couple of ideas who it might be. If you stick with actual forty k lore, but I'm just out there. It could be somebody completely new that we haven't heard of
0: yet. Exactly. And and I think Abnet is a writer, an accomplished enough writer, and somebody who's been writing for a long enough period of time that going back to these old literary standards and playing with these ideas that, you know, there, there's definitely, he has said himself that Arthur Cannon Doyle inspired one of the ways that he approached one of the series, the Beckwin series. He has specifically said he tried to mix in a lot of Charles Dickens style imagery into a lot of the stuff that he Mm -hmm. did as far as the Undercity goes and the, the, um, the tombs of, queen mab uh they're not the tombs but there's like a there's an entire underworld of the city of queen mab um and that was a very like charles dickens style thing that he was going for and it's just it's all of this mixture and that whether or not you know to, to return to the concept of who lovecraft was as a person whether or not lovecraft was a good person Lovecraft's literature has had a massive impact on pretty much Mm -hmm. everything in the modern literary world Anne rice, Stephen King, Dean Koons all openly say that their writing styles are based on Lovecraft. And like, these are not, these are not minor people. These are heavy hitters in modern horror. Uh, Obviously, Rick Priestley, the designer of 40K, has said that there's influences from the Lovecraftian mythos and from Lovecraft himself. Dan Abnett has started to play with things from the greater Cthulhu mythos, may not necessarily being pulled directly from Lovecraft's work. But there's that idea that the structure that Lovecraft used to write his stories and the idea of the existential non-importance of humans has just is very much part of grimdark. It's yeah. very much part of modern sci-fi fantasy. Um, He's very much do- as worked on. Um, so what
1: Lovecraft did is he exploited his own fear of the unknown and the other, very much of the other. Um, and because a lot of his stories deal with things like cults and by the other, we definitely do mean non white anybody who Protestants.
0: Yeah. Anybody who doesn't look like me. And again, this comes you know, Lovecraft's early life. He was rich. He was a, a, a child of prosperity and then he lost everything and was thrown into a world that he didn't understand. And, and, very complicated, incredibly fearful person is a good way to sum him up. This was a dude who is absolutely petrified of his own shadow.
1: Yeah. And he comes out, I mean, unlike also, and he is not, his horror writing is not of the slasher variety. So, and what I mean about that is he leaves a lot of it up to your imagination.
0: Yeah. Yeah you're you're you are to fill in the darkness that you're not supposed to see. Yeah.
1: Um Rats in the Walls is a wonderful one and it talks a about this gene- uh, degenerate group of people living under this England mansion that had been kept as human cattle for the lord to eat literally it's cannibalism and uh The Dunwich um,
0: Horror deals with the fact that like the the second son or the seventh son of a guy who dabbled too much in the dark arts of sorcery comes into his own power. And there's very much, there's a lot of beast men, um, ish yeah. references, like, like the way that the child looks the way that this demon child looks. And this is again, one of those things where like the, this sorcerer married, this weird albino woman, and like specifically because she was weird and had that her weirdness gave him extra power. And like, that's what it all is. It, it's all of this idea of these outsiders, these others, these mm-hmm. unexplained members of society um, in the 1920s, which was yeah. kind of a creepy period. And, you know, I really see things like um, I, I see the I see
1: the influence of Lovecraft in uh, the Skaven, especially uh, the way he talks about Lovecraft uh, has this whole series where he talks about the ghouls. The ghouls mm-hmm. are not. Don't don't think of ghouls as in actually even Warhammer fantasy ghouls because the ghouls aren't undead.
0: They are these. They're mutated. Peop- yeah. They're people. They're people who eat the flesh of the living, and that that's actually but, the, uh, the, not, the they classic. They the dead. The dead. Thank you, and that's actually the classical, um, the classical representation of a ghoul they're yeah. we
1: just so. and they have this civilization that lives in the sewers underneath the cities yeah and they're also in um
0: the the dream quest there was a movie that we watched not that long ago timothy chalamet is in it um and they're they don't call them ghouls but they're definitely ghouls uh bones and all is the name of the movie and it's about people who are born with the desire to eat flesh. Um, and Timothy Chalamet, and there's a gal, I can't remember the, the actress's name, are both in it. And they fall in love. And it, I think it takes place in like the 60s or 70s. Um, it, no, it must take place in the 70s or 80s because there's, there's a lot of rock and roll uh, from that era in it, like Kiss and stuff like that are in it. But like the idea is that people are born, ghouls are born. People are just born, and they have that's the thing. They mm-hmm. like eating flesh, um, and like it's really slow burny, creepy, and that's what all of this stuff is. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, is, is actually, there, no,
1: there are no jump scares. Yeah. In Lovecraft,
0: in but you don't
1: necessarily go to you don't necessarily sleep well after reading some of these. It's stories.
0: creeping, creeping horror. It's existential yeah. horror. Obviously, with the way that I approached when I when I sat down, I don't know how much of this you actually know, Chuck. But when I sat down and pitched the idea of what would become under the hive of madness, the idea essentially was how to talk about lore and world building and literature that interests and excites me and um, Under the Hive of Madness is a literary reference to In the Mountains of Madness, very specifically. But a lot of the stuff that we've done in our world-building also comes out of the expanded Cthulhu mythos. And uh, I wanted to, before we wrap up here, before we get final thoughts here, I wanted to read an excerpt from Casilda's song, which is in Act 1, Scene 2, of the play The King in Yellow, from the book that we had mentioned by Robert W. Chambers. And, and again, lots of Cthulhu-like feels, but this was written by an author that inspired Cthulhu. Uh, that Not inspired Cthulhu, that inspired Lovecraft. That's the way to say that, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Along the shore, the cloud waves break. Twin suns sink behind the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise, and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that Hades shall sing, where the flaps, the tatters of king, must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Songs of my soul, my voice is dead, die thou unsung, as tears unshed shall dry and die in Lost Arcosa. And if you have been a member of either our Discord or have been following the podcast for a long time, the Innsmouth, the planet that we run our radio show for, obviously Innsmouth Hive is a reference to the Shadow over Innsmouth. It is on a planet called Arconia, which is a reference to Arkham, which is a city in the Cthulhu mythos, not just a a sane asylum from Batman. Um, And then Carcosan sector. It's a Rhode Island. (laughs) And then the Carcosan, yeah. And then the Carcosan sector is the sector that everything is in. Mm -hmm. We played around and we attached all of to this, but even in just the imagery, think of the warp and go back and, and listen to the passage that I read. Strange is the night where black stars rise. Stars aren't black. Strange moons circle through the sky. We only have one. Like, it's just all of these things that are a little off, a little not right, things that you don't want to think about or feel or deal with. Um, Do you have any wrap-up thoughts or ending thoughts, anything you feel that we haven't touched yet?
1: I, I feel I think, like we could do
0: another two episodes on this. So. Yeah,
1: I, I think we've touched on a lot of it. it. It's you definitely see the there are definitely influences of Lovecraft in 40k. Obviously, Priestley said it said there is, so there is. But it's uh, it's not direct. If yeah, there there looking, is no yeah. If you're you you don't have Judge Dredd in the Arbides. you have this sort of like overall feeling. And like I said, I think Dan Abnett actually embodies it best in what he's been doing with the Inquisitor series. And I didn't see it at first, but with Family Gaw, there's a Glaw? Gaw. Gaw. Glaw, the Glaw. And how that's all... I did not get it because I'd read some of these so far apart, and it wasn't until I started rereading them all together that I started seeing all the links how all these nine now books are all linked together into a single story. Um, But a lot of those elements have sort of that cult underlying sort of horror and this other thing there. And I I think the other thing uh, in, in the Beckwin series, they talk about the city of dust, which they're looking for. And the city of dust, especially, she actually shows up there at the end. It's very, it v- very park-hosa. much like the, the um, <laughs> from the, the, it gives you the feeling of the, the dream quest. The dream quest is a series of books or, or stories that Lovecraft wrote that is not traditional Lovecraft. It is, you you go to sleep and you go to the dreamlands and the dreamlands are strange in the way that dreams are but they're also in strange in the ways that the warp is
0: um and it's what what is the place that you go to it's not carcosa it's no it's
1: it's the dreamlands but there are different destinations within the dreamlands like you can yeah. go to ulthar ulthar is the place where they tried to kill all the cats um cuz you have the, the cats of ulthar you have all these different cities, and if you read the the sort of it, the, it has a hero in it that's Randolph Carter. Randolph Carter is also he's the one that deals with the ghouls in Pickman's Model and a bunch of these other things. This is and Randolph Carter is actually
0: H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. yeah, he writes himself into it.
1: He writes himself, and this is this reoccurring hero but is also completely incapable of doing everything because he's so scared type of thing um and i think you're what we're going to see is i really see the the city of dust um as going to be part of this whole uh dream cycle i think i think that's where you're pulling in lovecraft but there are no there's there's no no great there's nothing like that in the dream quest it's it has quite a different feeling it's much more of a
0: fantasy feeling than a horror feeling. There is no direct correlation between the great old ones of Lovecraft's writings of the mythos and the, the chaos gods. If you, if you want an almost direct one-to-one comparison, a lot of the elder things in the Warhammer—not the Warhammer—the Warcraft world by Blizzard— are very very reminiscent of a lot of the Cthulhu mythos beings. Like there's there's an entity that's essentially yog Shagoth. There's an entity that is essentially Cthulhu. There's an entity that is essentially uh, Neo Raphalop. There are these direct correlations between those two. And when you come to the Warhammer 40k universe, it's a little bit more that the Id- like the idea of yog Shagoth. What Yogg is, and what the um, Shogoths that came from Yogg are, is just the way that demon entities work in the warp. They have no shape, they've got no rules, they're the raw essence of bubbling eyes and continuous creation, you know, mouths coming out of every, every, mm-hmm. every available surface. Those ideas, that raw otherness of like material creation comes across yeah. but there is no direct analog
1: if there if there was a if anything in lovecraft that sort of has a direct like hooks to the chaos gods i would have to say that's nyarlia or i don't know how you say anything
0: yeah, but, Nyar- um, yeah very very zinchian in a lot of ways yes but. and
1: that's the only one of the chaos gods or the greater beings that actually interacts directly with humans and it does it during the dream quest yeah um it's also been called like in the expanded universe the <laughs> the expanded universe uh sort of like the the dark pharaoh and stuff like that, which also gives the idea of the king in yellow, although the king in yellow has been seen to be has been sort of been shown to be uh haster, which is a whole nother thing, so
0: what we're ending up with when we talk about a lot of concepts like this is like like where do the ideas come from you know we're not we're not trying to lay out a map that shows how the stories are the same we're trying to lay out a map that shows how ideas permeate culture
1: yeah th- these are just things that
0: influenced there's not 40k is not lovecraftian but it draws from it yeah it's like 10 percent lovecraftian you would never say that warhammer 40k exists in the cthulhu mythos no um I, I don't think the planet would have got... I don't think the planet gets to 40K in the Cthulhu mythos. But when we when we go back uh, from the lore side and talk about the War in Heaven and the Great Old Ones, there is a lot of Great Old Ones stuff that very much feels directly from the mythos. Oh, yeah. Um, the enslavers. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the this, fact that no one this, really knows what the Great Old Ones are. Like, the yes. Great Old Ones... And they share a name with the the Lovecraftian mythos. There's just all of these things that no one knows about. Okay,
1: so what are the Catan called? What are the Uh, Catan?
0: The Catan are the star. Yeah, come on. You're almost there. Star children? No.
1: They're star vampires. Star vampires, thank you. And there's actually that
0: is very close to what some of the entities are in. There is. Yeah. There is a lesser independent race in the mythos called the star vampire. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Although the,
0: the, the, Catan are called the star vampires because they literally eat they stars. They eat stars. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Catan are, if I were to place the Catan somewhere, they would be, uh, yeah, they, I, I think, I, I think they'd probably be at the same level. Of the mythos, if you look at the mythos, they would just be another weird thing that exists. The katan are not the old ones, and and I know that people mix. Yes, those. but but
1: remember, we we are when we talk about the katan in a 40k setting, we are talking about shards. We are not talking about the original the full
0: god. Yeah, they've the been full broken.
1: God, full god mode katan that was eating stars. the these the, these big amorphous energy vampire. We're talking about this is what's on the screen. Which is not what the Catan is. That is a shard yeah. of the Catan.
0: Because the Catan a... were defeated by the Great Old Ones. <laughs> yes. Um, well, no. the, and the Necron. It, it's complicated.
1: Yeah. They were the, the Catan enslaved the Necron tier, but at the same time were broken. Yeah. yeah. Basically. It, it, it's, they, they yeah, were tricked. it's a whole thing. They, they were tricked. The same way that the the. Catan tricked the Necron tier into offering up their souls for these artificial bodies. They were also tricked by the Necron tier to take on physical form. So they diminished themselves and they yeah. basically became shards yeah. that could be, then a, be
0: imprisoned and locked away. And there's a lot of stuff in that that is very, at least lower level Cthulhu oh, yeah. mythos. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, that, that is very close to it. Well, yeah, that'll wrap it up for our deep dive into the Lovecraftian mythos and the chaos gods. As always, Chalk and I will be back to explore more of the speculative fiction that inspired Warhammer 40k. I think we'll next probably actually deal with the old ones and the slan as far from 40k goes. If you have any feedback or questions about this episode or the podcast in general, you can reach out to us at underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com. Chuck, go ahead and run down where people can find you. Um, you can find me at
1: Chuck Balam on um TikTok. You can find me at um Chuck Balam underscore on uh Instagram because that was taken. Um I also run a couple of sort of out there strange uh Facebook groups that deal with um legions imperialis the new uh sort of epic game coming out and then i've got a small group that deals with 3d printing and alternate scale science fiction armies although it's mostly 40 30k stuff but it's me it's me and a couple of other people talking about everything from 15 millimeter down to three millimeter armies anything that's not 28 millimeter because that's boring
0: that's it's a pretty i gotta admit it's pretty cool i I love jumping in and seeing what everybody's talking about yeah i'm not Um, i'm not at the level of investing in epic but
1: (laughs) i've been you know like i said i i did epic back in the day so i'm definitely doing it i don't know if it'll last but i also have so much of the classic stuff and of course i can just print out as much as i want so
0: yeah, yeah that's always the nice part about nobody it nobody
1: around here i'm I'm hopeful because with the new game maybe some people will actually play it like so actually play but, it yeah. with people because nobody around me plays epic so
0: i'm seeing a lot of people that are kind of leaning towards doing stuff with it so i imagine there's a chance that that will be something that and happens And the other half of people think it's going to fail immediately
1: but i think yeah. it's going to stick around Let's It's see. it's been around with the you know uh, g-dub kept um adeptus titanicus and they even uh um capped ai which is i have whatever airplanes imperialis even though they got rid of all the uh the
0: xenos ones yeah the, which sucks because those were the fun ones <laughs> yeah but they're, they're
1: just converting it all to they're just doing uh horse hairs yeah, it's all Horace it's Harris all here. moving over yeah uh, that's all there is even though there was plenty of xenos in 30k that's why the that's that's that, that, that's why my my buddies the dark angels went from the largest chapter to one of the small, largest legion to one of the smallest ones
0: it would be interesting to see xenos i think we mentioned this in a past episode a recent past episode it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see xenos in 30k but i don't think it's ever there are a couple I of think, people that are doing I think 30k is going to stay where it, what it is yeah
1: there are a couple of people that are doing a lot of kit bashing and a lot of development of xenos of the great crusade and so they've got HUD, they've got um, modeling. They're pulling everything out that they can so that you can actually play the all the the cool stuff that happened before those nine years of the Heresy.
0: Yeah, that would be what would be cool to me is if they expand the the Heresy game to include the Great Crusade. Yeah, but yeah. if you guys want to get into contact with Chalk or get into contact with us and continue any of these conversations, you can join us on our Discord community. Chalk's there as well. We chat about Warhammer 40K lore, the hobby and the tactics. Plus we talk about Age of Sigmar, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, creative writing, video games, role-playing, a bunch of other stuff. You can also find us on Facebook, TikTok and Instagram or find us at www.underthehighofofmadness.com. Not only do I drop... Link trees, but I also have a bunch of spellings down in the description so you can find all of us much easier. If you want to help the podcast grow, you can do that by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. Our home is Spotify, but you can also find us on Apple, Google, Audible, and several others, including iHeartRadio, um, ACAST, a couple other places out there. You can also find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com/ under the hive of madness. All Patreon members get access to a video podcast so you can see our beautiful faces while hearing all of the blunders that happen. I don't edit that as much. You can also see whatever images that we bring up as we're talking about different stuff. Another thing that we've started doing for our patrons, and uh, Chalk has actually already won. He was our first winner as we started doing monthly giveaways. So if you're I still subs- think that was rigged. I, I won <laughs> the first painting contest and the first giveaway. But you won the you won the objective markers for the giveaway. And when's the last time you played a sit down game? Like a year uh, ago? <laughs> I played
1: one game in the last couple of months. Uh, okay, okay, okay. My, my, my goal for twenty twenty four is to play
0: another game of forty k. There you go. Take those objective markers with you. So uh, we do we do giveaways. It's usually some of our own brand- branded merch. Uh, the easiest way, the way to get into it, right off the bat today is join and sub at either the $6 or $9 level. We're new to doing giveaways. We're new to figuring it all out. Like, do we give everybody who's at $6 two chances? Do we give everybody who's at $9 three chances? Like, we have to figure all that stuff out. So if you want to get involved immediately, that's the best way to do it. All of our Patreon levels also get access to our quarterly painting contest, which Chalk just mentioned. We set a theme. We give you guys, like, a month or two to paint the model, and then we do a vote. The community does a vote, the hosts, us, we do a vote, and then somebody wins a trophy. Chalk, you've got one. Yep. I'm surprised you haven't gone for a second one yet. We've we've won somebody's won a second red squid trophy. I, you know somebody has two of them. So much better.
1: There weren't as many people involved, and now you got people that actually paint really good. But oh I'm just a okay got,
0: painter. you're you're a pretty good painter. You should do it again. Anyway, if you guys have any interest in seeing us grow as far as the channel goes and releasing different content and more types of content, head on over to Patreon and check all of that stuff out. We might be lost somewhere in the rust reef, harried by the echoing chants of some mad cult with the hounds of some eldritch monstrosity snapping at our heels. But at least I have these two nice new shiny plasma axes and um, I would say this is a target rich environment to test them in. Shock, you always know how to find the good stuff, even if it's icker covered this time. <laughs> they can't stop the signal, no matter how deep underground they force us, for we are the truthiness and the uncertain frosty cold along night. 665.66 UHMR Rat Radio, reminding all of you Camrats, Hive Mice, and Sump Ghoulies to keep those dials fixed right here. Same ratty frequency for a dose of the same ratty ass attitude. In the Underhive's depths, where darkness does creep, four-armed emperors with sinister secrets keep. With claws like daggers and eyes glowing red, stay close to the hearth, child, or you'll end up dead. They slink through tunnels, their plans obscure, stealing innocence with their icy grip, sealing fates for sure. So stay in your burrow, don't roam after dark, least the four-armed emperor leave their chilling mark a, ch- a children's that limerick was,
1: that was actually really good <laughs> from the hive <laughs> thank you
0: <laughs> You I don't like have anything my... else to say about that i like that <laughs> i'm trying man all right guys all right see you all later